Welcome back to Just FY Pod Ideas. This is Chris Barnett. It's Wednesday, February the 28th. Uh, we're almost at the end of February, hard to believe. And I've just given a call to my co-host, Clark Elliston. Uh, Clark, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. We've got a cold snap here, uh, and I'm in the midst of, uh, for me, it's not a Chris Barnett level writing session, but for me, Clark Elliston, it's an epic writing session. So, uh, so I'm putting together a piece on friendship and modernity and whether or not it's possible. So, uh, it means that basically, basically, <laughs> I'm trying to decide if we're even friends, Chris. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. Wait, hold on. <laughs> yeah, so wait, what, what is it? Possible? Yeah. It's just a, it's a fiction of our imagination, and all we are is. Uh, you know, as Aristotle might say, um, you know, there's no such thing as a friendship of virtue any longer. It's all just simply pleasure and or utility. So uh, if that makes no sense to you, um, dear listener, then then don't worry about it, because it's, it's probably going to be one of those academic publications that goes into the bin. Uh, and I get my $20 royalty check every five years for it. So, uh, you know, <laughs> wait, wait, hashtag live in the dream. Right, right. Yeah, this reminds me too. I mean, it, what what are, what is this particular piece for? I mean, are you going to submit it cold to like a journal, or do you already know where you're going to you know publish it? I, I don't. I've got a couple of ideas. Uh, yeah. it, it's it's part of a longstanding piece of work, not piece of work, a series of works on work uh, and leisure, and that morphed into a consideration of friendship um, and, and these rather classical things. Uh, but of course. What, what's funny about it is that the oldest things keep coming back around it again and again. And in light of the way that we think about friendship and social media and the internet, uh, I do wonder if actually there are some things that have pretty fundamentally changed um, about friendship and in, in, in our world. And, and really, are people even seeking out friendships anymore? Um, there's good empirical evidence to suggest that. Uh, I think it was um, recently reported that you know teenagers hang out 50% less than they did in 2000, 2010. Oh, so it's wow. not yeah. it's not even that long ago. Um, so anyway, yeah, that, that's what I'm doing. What are you up to? Well, yeah, I, I'll, I'll jump into that one second, but I, I just have to throw out this note. It reminds me a little bit of this SNL skit from a few years ago about the man park, I think is what it was called, where the <laughs> where the uh, right. the spouses of these men are like they're worried about their they're like, oh, I'm really worried about Jimmy. He just doesn't have like, you know, he just doesn't hang out and do things in, you know on his own or whatever. So they, they all go to this big park and, and like a different places it's basically like a dog park right so they're they, all these men are running around they're talking like hey do you like basketball and then the other ones look at them and they're like yeah you know so it's just sort of making fun of this idea you should actually incorporate this but it's sort of making fun of the idea that male friendships in particular are are difficult in this world and that they that men need like a little push to to actually develop friendships anyway just remind well, me well this is an interesting case yeah. of of life imitating art because the, the new york times put out an article i mean couldn't have been more than two or three weeks ago uh wherein it says exactly that that basically men don't hang out anymore um and that there's no avenues for them to do it and it's a major feature of course they were couching it in terms of mental health and all this sort of stuff these like kind of outcomes so so yeah i mean uh, who knows maybe maybe uh, snl was actually the motivator uh, <laughs> of men forgetting how to to hang out together so well they get it right every once in a while but yeah in terms of what i'm working on um yeah i mean i i'm i'm yeah sort of t as usual working on various uh, writing projects but i did just put out on my Substack, a pretty lengthy essay on this uh, French Oscar name and Oscar nominated movie, uh, Anatomy of a Fall. Have you seen that mm -hmm. yet, Clark? No, I haven't. Yeah. I saw your, I actually read your Substack on it though. Yeah. 
Oh, good. Yeah. Well, so, and I thought, you know, it's just a really interesting uh, movie about, I guess, marriage in general, but I think also about the question of moral responsibility that we feel in relationships. I guess you could probably tie it to friendship as well. Um, and, and in the movie, um, there's, a, I guess, a kind of celebration of a, uh, the ambiguity that we feel morally towards our spouses or the people we're in, in, in sort of close relationships with and how we're constantly sort of looking for, I don't know, uh, you know uh, the ability to justify ourselves over against others. Um, I just thought it was a really interesting investigation of, of marital breakdown. And uh, it reminded me of Kierkegaard's own reflections, usually pseudonymous, about his broken engagement. And I just felt like these were two pieces that could sort of speak to one another. So I, I really enjoyed working on that. And it was my little, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll not make it into variety or, you know, uh, Vanity Fair or something, but at least I, I tried to uh, comment on Oscar season, which is coming up pretty soon here. Well, uh, it's also got some Girardian elements too, which I thought were pretty interesting. So I'm kind of looking forward to talking about, I don't know, maybe what is my favorite book uh, that I've actually read for this series yet. So no, I'm looking forward to today. So, uh, you know, good start. Yeah. So, okay. With that in mind, good segue. So today we're going to talk about two books that, I mean, in a way they're connected or you could find points of connection. I mean, we're certainly, we're talking about two uh, sort of prominent Catholic writers, um, albeit from different perspectives. And I think in the case of Rene Girard, I mean, his Catholicism isn't sort of on his sleeve, if you will, but it's, it's an undercurrent. And then, and, and, you know, you're going to talk about Rene Girard's uh, what I see Satan fall like lightning, right? That's, right. That's yep. yeah. And uh, and I'm going to talk about Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. So I have a medieval text, you have a modern text, and maybe who knows by the time we're done with this, we'll find some pretty interesting points of connection. But um, without further ado, I think we'll take a quick break, gear up for a discussion of medieval mysticism, right? And uh, and we'll be right back to discuss Julian of Norwich. Love it. Great. Welcome back. All right. So I'm first up today. I'm the one that picked the medieval author. <laughs> so that that puts me on, you know, on the hot seat first. And uh, before I get started, you were saying earlier that you're not particularly familiar with Julian of Norwich, right? Yeah, no, I, I would say that uh, the medieval mystical tradition is a definite point of relative weakness in my theological knowledge. <laughs> right. um, I mean, because I say that, and I'm, obviously I'm saying that a bit tongue-in-cheek. I mean, I've got, I've got some experience with, say, uh, you know, the Paulus Press uh, spiritual work series, which I believe you have contributed to. I have, um, yeah. Uh, and they've got a great uh, edition on Francis and Claire. Um, I actually think I have... Uh, I've read a bit of Catherine of Siena um, and uh, Teresa of Avila. So, I mean, but outs but I mean, I would not say um, that in any way, shape or form, those have made a, a quite frankly lasting impact on me. So I think that's why I was actually really intrigued by your selection because uh, I'm very curious what you're, what you're going to say. Well, yeah, I am too, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is, which is part of the problem. But, uh, but I, I do, I do love this text. I'm going to go into it in a minute, but, but I will say, and this is a, 
you know, kind of a qualification up front. I mean, I'm not a medievalist either. I mean, I, and I've worked with medievalists, good ones too. And uh, you, you realize in discussing their craft, uh, the way they go about these texts, how complicated the issues involved in, you know, mystical texts that come from, let's say the 12th or the 13th century, their providence, the, the, also the, the sort of genealogy of research on those texts and how they were passed down. And um, a lot of my own sort of academic research does try to do that, but with modern writers, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, you and I are dealing, and I think you, know, you would also consider yourself somebody who's focused on I think, modern theology. And so that gives us a completely different point of departure when you're thinking of, let, let's say if you're working on Bonhoeffer, as I know you do, um, there's really no doubt when the books came out or did Bonhoeffer write them? <laughs> you know, you're not really dealing with these really difficult questions of like textual origins and, and authorship and so on. But when you get into medieval texts, I mean, there a lot of times there's a whole body of secondary literature just about like, let's say the surviving manuscripts that are involved. Um, so I joked earlier about, you know, feeling kind of curious about how I'm going to approach this because I picked the book because I enjoy it. Then I started realizing, okay, I have to talk with some degree of intelligence about this book and then realizing how many sort of thorny, you know, historical and contextual knots there are when you're approaching a text this old. Well, well um, and so, yeah, just, and please. Just ask, I mean, uh, let's just let's just jump right into it. I mean, a, a real conceptual uh, thorn bush that I want to I want to tackle right at the outset is uh, speak as to a child. What is mysticism? Oh God, no, Clark! Don't do it. Like, the, 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 listen, a, a colleague of mine at Villanova, Rachel Smith, and I, a few years ago, we were tasked with writing the description for the spirituality area uh, for the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at Villanova, and we spent, you know, maybe like an entire weekend or something, sort of hammering out like a three or four page. By the way, it should be still online if anybody wants to read it. But we spent, you know, a good bit of time hammering out this. Uh, statement right of purpose and then we get to the faculty meeting and so many people were annoyed with our write-up and so many people and both of us to to an extent are specialists in spirituality and our colleagues were like no that can't be right that's not what it means and you know everybody had these different discussions and of course the nature and the origins of mysticism in general are often sort of debated uh and so i mean, I, I sort of laugh like i mean you know, you would have actually just, you, you and I had said earlier, we really don't need to go as long today as we did last week. And I'm thinking we could spend six hours just talking about how to define mysticism. Well, um, well, I, I partly yeah. ask that question because um, I don't think she will ever listen to this podcast. God bless her if she does. Uh, but I ask this question to Natalie Carnes, uh, who herself mm -hmm. yeah. is, is obviously interested, um, has been in the past at least, um, in early Christian mysticism. And uh, and I, I am embarrassed to say I don't remember the, the 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 contours, the immediate contours of her answer. But I remember enough to, to think I would never have thought of that. Uh, and I'm not really sure that I know what the implications of that are. Uh, and that is entirely not due to her to her explanation as much as I think my limitations. So I, I yeah. asked that partly tongue in cheek, but then again, partly because I think it's actually a, a I think it is a kind of useful question. Um, it, it, you know, it's it's useful in the sense that it's the it's the right question, but I think it has to be said up front that it cannot be answered uh, definitively uh, or pithily. But 
Okay, I, I'm gonna throw out a couple thoughts just just to you know just to show you that I at least have a few opinions here. Well, I mean, first of all, I would say, you know, if you really want to dig into this, these definitions uh, and these kind of systematic ways to get at Christian spirituality, Sandra Schneiders, who's a, um, I believe I believe she's Catholic. She's written on this subject pretty. Um, I would say with, with a good bit of acclaim and I think almost has become the kind of standard writer in the field on defining what spirituality and mysticism mean. But typically those things are used to, to describe, I would say, the lived experience of faith. Okay. Mm -hmm. But spirituality, as we understand it today, has become uncoupled from, I would say, this sort of concrete expression of doctrinal faith and has become kind of its own kind of more generic kind of modern experience of let's say questions about God or different ways to pray or sometimes it's it's syncretistic where you incorporate a variety of traditions into one spirituality you know someone might I think maybe rightfully uh, say that they have spiritual experiences in nature that have nothing to do explicitly with Christian teachings and so on. So if you cut, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. Well, so, so forgive my, forgive my uh, cutting of the Gordian knot here, but do you think then that it, at least a, a, an approximate definition for our purposes might be something mm. like if theology is speech or thought about God, that, that spirituality uh, rather, or mysticism rather is the experience of God. Would that be fair? <laughs> Well, that's also a thorny question. So, you know, Dennis Turner, for example, in his book, The Darkness of God, really took a knife to the idea that mysticism refers to anything like actual experience. And he saw he saw experience as being kind of a, a modernist construct, right, that was rooted in certain, you know, affectations and sort of assumptions that whatever we do in life can be comprehended or felt in some way. But for Turner in that book, he sort of argues that the experience of God is one of negation as well as affirmation. And mm -hmm. so mysticism actually takes place outside of our normal constructs of feeling and, sen and sense and things like that. So I, 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 I don't know if I would totally agree with that, but I was going to add, I was going to add this qualifier to your question. Um, and for, for the listener, we did not rehearse this at all. So, I mean, so my point is, I've definitely not, I'm not prepared to give a great answer here, but I do think I should say this. Christian mysticism is, I think, really what we should start focusing. We're, we're trying to refine this, this terminology a little bit. You know, Christian mysticism or the mystical theology of, of, of Christian authors, right, that, that, which is what we encounter in people like Julian of Norwich or, or Dionysius the Areopagite or some of these other kind of, you mentioned a couple earlier too, like Teresa of Avila, you know, these these sort of mystical texts are very much rooted in Christian teaching, and they they express one's experience of yes, but then also one's I would say kind of grappling with the problems of living into the ideals of the Christian faith, um, and that as one kind of goes through this process of deepening one's relationship with God, there are going to be various. You know, you might say, I mean, Julian Norwich talks about this. There's going to be alternate sort of experiences of sorrow and then joy. And there's going to be feelings of deeper, a deeper penetration, if you will, into the mystery of God and of the life of faith. And that these are going to be 
worked out and thematized in relation to Christian teachings, um, not just a generic, I felt something, right? Which is what we kind of get, you know, there's a, we were talking about earlier about SNL. Did you, do you ever watch some of those college humor videos? Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> oh, uh, wow. Uh, that was an unexpected uh, yeah, way back. Right. <laughs> you were talking about the medievalists, uh, but that's not even close to as far back as college humor. Okay, yes, sure. Somebody sent me one of those a number of years ago, and I, and I used to show bits of it to one of my classes, but it was sort of mocking our contemporary obsession with spirituality. And it's, they invite, there's this kind of like kumbaya sort of group that's all gathered around and they invite this, kind of stoner guy to come up and talk about his religious experiences. And he's, <laughs> he starts talking about being stoned at like a Grateful Dead concert <laughs> and how he went to like, you know, urinate in the woods and, and he saw a deer looking at him and he felt like the divine, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I think a lot of times we can start thinking of spirituality in these, these sort of, um, you know, I mean, it can be almost comical, but then also maybe these really generic terms. But I think what we're talking about today is something more like Christian mysticism, Christian spirituality, which, again, is a kind of, you know, an existential investigation of the I'm only I'm only thinking of big, big words right now, but the vicissitudes of the experience of faith. Right. As one kind of works through the ins and outs of understanding the nature of God in Christian terms. And of course, that's often going to involve the person of Christ, as it does with Julian of Norwich, and in grappling with the person of Christ, it's going to mean a confrontation with crucifixion and rejection, but then also reconciliation and resurrection, right? And that these, these core sort of doctrinal aspects of Christianity are then experienced or expressed through the, the, the sort of grappling of the person who's had the vision or is writing down these kind of experiences. So, okay. uh, so again, it, it's very complicated and I, and I, I don't want to, I, I know it's not the perfect answer, but I do think it hits on some of the main points and maybe, maybe we'll come back to those points as we go along. All right. So to narrow it down from just a little bit from, you know, what yeah. is mysticism? Um, tell me a little bit about Julian of Norwich. Yeah, so she's a very fascinating uh, figure in a lot of different ways. And I, you know, side note, I mean, my wife and I almost named our daughter Julian, and we talked about it. And then we, we were sort of throwing the name out to a handful of people. And they're like, oh, that's like, you know, that's like a boy's name, right? <laughs> and so uh, and, and I, we, then we sort of got cold feet. I mean, I don't know. I know that these sort of genderless names are cool now, but this was a few years ago. Maybe Maybe it wasn't as cool then. I don't know. But like, at the end of the day, we, we sort of backtracked and we went with uh, Monica Grace instead. But uh, in any case, Julian of Norwich is somebody that I, I've been interested in for a while. And when you kind of look at her life, I mean, in some respects, there's there's not a lot to say. I mean, we don't know a lot about her bi biography. But in other respects, there's all kinds of kind of inferences and sort of assumptions we can make as we study the life uh, that she lived at that time. And so let me say a little bit more about that. So first of all, Norwich, right, is is in the eastern part of, of England, right? And so, you know, not too far from the coast. Um, and it was a cathedral city, Norwich was, uh, and, and still is as far as I know. Um, and it's located along the River Winsome, you know, sort of northeast of London, about 100 miles. Um, and so Julian lived there. So when we talk about Julian of Norwich, we're talking about she was someone who lived in Norwich at that time. 
she was born around 1343 and she died sometime after 1416. So we can place her sort of roughly in the 14th, 15th century uh, in some ways. And she was an anchoress. I now have to ask Clark, do you know what an anchoress is? Uh, well, an anchorite is a hermetic monk, correct? So an anchoress would be, I, I guess, a female anchorite. That is yes. Yeah, that, in, in, her, in isolation. Correct. And I could have, yeah, and I could have said anchorite. You, you almost got anchorite correct. But this is what's, uh, which is what's interesting about what an anchorite or an anchoress is. So the word itself comes from this ancient Greek term that means I withdraw. Okay, so in that sense, you're right. It's a kind of hermit-like existence that an anchorite or anchoress lives. Anybody who is in this sort of, you know, we'll say vocation has chosen to separate from common society in order to pursue a life devoted to prayer and ascetic practice, right? So fasting and so on and so forth. Now, in this regard, they're, again, they're basically like hermits, but here's the difference. Anchorites or anchoresses in Julian's case, right, tend to live in a permanent cell or like an enclosure that's attached to a church. And so for example, and I thought this was fascinating. I mean, I, I need to look more into this, but an anchorite. And so again, we can assume that Julian would have had very much these kind of experiences will usually live like off the uh, sanctuary, right? And they will be permitted a small window to observe mass. But because they're permanently enclosed in this cell, they are not allowed to come into the church to receive mass, but a handful of times a year, I, I believe it must be brought to them. So they've essentially confined themselves in the presence of the Eucharist on purpose forever, right? So there's a sense in which they are they are living as if dead, you know, and that's the that's sort of what distinguishes the anchorite from the hermit, because the hermit might be more itinerant, might wander, might live here, might live there, but stays away from common society. But the anchorite is sort of attached to a community. Okay. So this is also kind of entrenched in the sort of communal life of that particular parish because when a person chooses to become an anchorite or an anchoress, this person will undergo a ritual consecration in which they are essentially uh, declaring that they have died to the world. So, for example, when you enter the cell, you're basically entering your, your place of, of death already. And they will usually sing an anchorite or an anchoress will usually sing like an antiphon that says something like, here I am at my rest forever. Um, so, you know, that by itself is just kind of fascinating and so, so, so deeply clashes with our modern sensibilities that someone might choose to live as if dead and then to attach themselves to a church, which of course is consecrated ground and Catholicism is uh, you know, it, it, it is the, the sort of house of Christ because the Eucharist is um, is kept there and the masses are said there. So the anchorite is binding himself or the anchoress is binding herself to the mass and to this particular church. Does it that, seems like, yeah, yeah, it seems like that's yeah. a, and just to point out that this seems to be a pretty common, maybe it's more than just common, maybe it's it's requisite that that that's the motivation for a great deal, if not all monasticism, though, is the separation from the world. And, and the differences may, um, one of the differences may be simply how that's expressed. I mean, I think about the mm -hmm. desert, that's mothers right. and fathers, right. you know, retreating into the desert. Um, and in this case, it's retreating from the world. Um, and yet, you know, in, in clear proximity to a, to a community, even though it sounds like, and again, don't know anything else about anchoritic uh, expressions of faith, that, that that would mean, though, that that is 
interpersonal contact outside of the bringing of the Eucharist itself? Is that forbidden? Well, that's what, that, that's a great question. And from what I can tell, you know, it kind of depended on the person. It depended on the community. So, uh, for example, just as I mentioned that the anchorite or the anchoress might have a kind of window onto uh, the Eucharist, they might also have a window that allows sort of, you know, a conversation with people on the outside. And so many times these anchorites would be considered kind of, you know, leader, guide, spiritual guides in some way, right? And I'll come back to that in a second with Julian, but she, she was also known for that. She was known mm -hmm. to be somebody that if you needed spiritual direction or wisdom, you could go to her. Um, and this becomes a way that the anchorite is, yes, removed from common society, but then also is in service to the church mm -hmm. uh, and, in, and in service to people around him or her. So it ain't, maybe in a way we could think of anchorites as pitched somewhere between the you know, kind of the communal mysticism, right, of, 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 of like, I don't know, let's say the Benedictine order or something. And then also this, you know, aromatic mysticism that's expressed, like you said, by people who have separated into the wilderness in some way. It feels like, and this is, I mean, I say this with a little bit of scholarly unconfidence, but, but I, I feel like it's in a kind of popular way, it's fair to say that these people are, are, are in some kind of midpoint between those two extremes, mm -hmm. I think. Okay. Um, well, uh, so yeah, go ahead. Do you want to say more about her biography or do you want to start talking about her significance? Yeah. Let me say just a little bit more because mm -hmm. I, that's what I wanted to say. So, so the reason why we know of this woman, uh, as Julian is because her church was St. Julian's church in Norwich. Right. So she essentially took the name of her church. Um, I think whether or not she was called Julian by her peers at the time, I'm not sure is clear, but certainly, uh, to posterity, she is known to uh, she's known to us as Saint Julian or Julian because she was attached to Saint Julian's Church in Nor in Norwich. So, where did this church take its name? Well, probably from Saint Julian the Hospitaller, who was a fourth century saint, uh, patron of hospitalers, boatmen, and clowns, which I found very interesting. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I mean, this is that's as Catholic as it gets, right? Um, and uh, one of the interesting things today is that wait, wait, um, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Did you say clowns? I said clowns. Yes, I did, Clark. Yes. <laughs> oh, and many more things besides. Let me say it's not. I, I just picked three that I found particularly interesting. <laughs> so I, I, okay, all right. I, I won't. Yeah. I won't follow that up for the sake of time. But I have so many questions. Okay, continue. Sorry. <laughs> so this church apparently was, uh, you know, well kept and had become kind of a a site for pilgrimage for years, and it still is in some ways. However, it's worth noting, if you ever do go to Norwich and you want to go uh, you know, visit St. Julian's Church, if you go there, you will not see the original structure. Because why? Because the Germans bombed it during World War II. The Norwich Blitz of June 1942 uh, saw that church utterly decimated. And so it's been rebuilt. And I think a kind of replica of St. Julian's uh, cell has been, um, has been fashioned and people can go there. Now, I mean, as for her actual life, again, who she was, there's lots of debates, okay? And she makes, a, there's autobiographical statements in her text. I'll come back to that. But um, it's, it's pretty clear that, you know, given the era, um, her being a woman at this time where you would not have had women in positions of power in the church or something along those lines, we don't have lots of clear records about who she was or exactly how she came to live at St. Julian's Church or exactly her role there. I think there's lots of, from what I can tell, there's lots of theories. Um, you know, maybe she had been a mother at some point. She makes such a big deal about motherhood in her writings. Um, maybe uh, 
she was a, a kind of normal person who then became ill and then chose to join uh, or, or to, to sort of engage in this kind of religious life. It's not really clear. I mean, I think one of the best sort of, I guess, hints that her personality does come from people who went to visit her and to consult with her on these spiritual questions. So a very famous one is uh, Marjorie Kemp. I'm sure you've heard of. Mm -hmm. She was born in 1373, died 1438, roughly. Um, and she was also an English mystic. This is a very, for those who aren't really familiar with this time period, I mean, this is a real flourishing period of English mysticism. Uh, and you can do a real deep dive on people such as Walter Hilton or the, the, the anonymous text, The Cloud of Unknowing, Marjorie Kemp. Um, uh, there are many others uh, as well. And uh, Marjorie Kemp records that she traveled from King's Lynn, which is a, a city uh, northwest of Norwich, and paid a visit to Julian. Um, I, I guess sort of in the early 15th century, Julian was quite elderly, but Julian gave her advice, sort of spiritual guidance. Um, another thing that we know just based on the time period uh, during which Julian lived is that she lived during the time of the plague or the, or the so-called uh, Black Death. Um, and so this is a really, I think, important point because so much of her work has to do with human suffering and the desire to find God in the midst of the kind of travails of human life. And when she says that, when she says this is a big concern of hers, uh, that seems to be very well earned. I mean, uh, I saw that upwards of half of the population of England was taken out by the Black Death in the 1340s. So, I mean, this was a, a really harrowing time to be alive and Julian uh, lived through it. And so the fact that her texts are typically taken to be extremely optimistic and hopeful says something I think about her, maybe her character and about the kind of Christian that she was, about the kind of person that she was. Um, and I think there's something really um, sort of fascinating and beautiful about that. But, you know, at the end of the day, and this is the last thing I'll say about her biography. I mean, I think what we need to know about Julia Norwich is that we really only know her through these texts, right? Um, the so-called uh, revelations of divine love. They were written, and I'll come back when I say they, I'll explain this in a minute, but they were written at some point during the 15th century, but really did not enter the kind of common sort of lexicon of spiritual writing until uh, 1670, when a Benedictine monk named Serenus Cressy published uh, one of the versions of Julian's uh, Revelations of Divine Love. Still, she was more or less forgotten uh, even after that. Um, I think she had maybe certain followers, but uh, it wasn't until the 20th century that Julian of Norwich became, I guess you might say, kind of household name amongst uh, Christian mystics. Okay, well, this is a little bit of an odd um set of questions given what you've already said, but um, in a nutshell, can you tell me why she's significant? Yeah, like, no, I mean, why, why read her rather than, than other mystics or to the extent to which we even have writings from of other mystics at this point in time? Well, I think, yeah, there are, there, there's in some respects, a lot of mysticism. I mean, if once you, once you've dug through, let's say that Paul Express series, like you were talking about, you know, it, it might even seem to kind of blend together in some ways, or that there might be seem to be a lot of texts that have so many commonalities. Um, but but Julian, I, I do think is is interesting for a few reasons and significant, I should say, for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, why did she become so important in the 20th century, right? I mean, some of this is kind of contextual and, by, and, and it has to do with the sort of history of the reception of her texts. 
But I think another issue here is just what was happening in the 20th century. So one of the real big moments in the reception of Julia Norwich was when T.S. Eliot quoted her uh, in his collection of poems, Four Quartets, which came out in 1943. And, and Eliot in this poem, Little Getting, which is about a small chapel, I believe, um, you know, had quoted Julian and many people were sort of like, who is that? You know, and Eliot, of course, is writing during the, the sort of the blitz of, the, of England at the time and the sort of rampant death and destruction that had taken place in Europe during the first half of the 20th century. So there was something about Julian that caught his eye, right? And there are other English writers from that same period. Iris Murdoch is one who also drew on Julian. So she becomes a, and this is this is the really relevant point here, she becomes a very important figure for the 20th century understanding of Christian spirituality. Um, in the Church of England, she's now considered a saint. She's a feast day, May the 8th. Um, in Catholicism, she's not really considered, she's not, she's not canonized. She's not, she's not officially oh, a saint of the church. Yeah. I think, and I, I was sort of poking around that this morning. And from what I can tell, it, it has to do with one major reason. There's probably other ancillary reasons, but the major reason is that there's so little known about her personally. Right. So mm -hmm. it's hard to sort of attest certain things to her. We only really have these texts, as I mentioned earlier, but her texts, Revelations of Divine Love are definitely considered um, some of the, the, the greatest of all of Catholic literature. Um, you can find references to it in the, the catechism of the Catholic church. Um, the, the Vatican has selections from revelations of divine love on its website. So we're not talking about somebody, she's not marginalizing Catholicism. She's just not canonized as a saint, which has right. to do again with her being sort of relatively unknown as a human being in terms of her biographical life. That doesn't mean that she shouldn't be considered for canonization. I will say this as a side note, I was always very fascinated by the medieval mystic John Toller, um, and he also isn't canonized, and I think also for similar reasons. So just because you're a great mystic in the Catholic tradition doesn't mean you're like, you know, ipso facto named a, a saint. You know, it, her, the, the value of the writings of these figures is, in a sense, separate from their, you know, historical you know, biographies and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about why she's significant, basically it has to do with these texts that became very popular and became um, well-loved amongst modern writers and modern thinkers and modern practitioners of Christian spirituality. And so then the next question would be like, so, okay, like why her? And I think you, you nailed that first and foremost. I mean, why her? What's what's so um, intriguing or appealing about Julian of Norwich? I mean, I think a couple of things. Okay, so so one, and again, I'm speaking broadly, but one would be that she's very clear that she's had these divine revelations. In other words, God showed her things. In fact, she calls them in the Middle English, I believe, shoeings. Right? Yeah. God showed her things. But our typical understanding of mysticism, and you kind of alluded to this in your question at the outset, is something like mysticism has to do with private experiences like these ecstatic experiences of god's presence or something like that um now again dennis turner doesn't like that definition but a lot of people think of mysticism in those terms okay mm -hmm. but julian of norwich says i was given these shoeings for you right for the community for the church and i think that gives that there's a real kind of sense of like we're in this together when you read julian of norwich right she's speaking to me and for my benefit it's not just about her. It's not just about some kind of privatized experience, but it's about the revelation of God's love for us, right? And I think that's one reason why she's considered to be so 
uh, it's sort of prominent. And I think another thing, and this is also maybe a potential weakness of Julian of Norwich. I, I can come back to that later, but her message is so beautiful and hopeful that I think it really does appeal to modern sensibilities, right? Yes, she was an anchoress. Yes, she had separated uh, from common society. But there's something about her that's immediately identifiable. She talks about the, sort of the maternal love that God has for us. She talks about um, feeling depressed and, and struggling with things in life. There's a real kind of, there's a sense in which you kind of get her. You know, you kind of like, I, I can relate to this person when you read her work. And I think that's made her very popular in the 20th century. She doesn't feel, you know, I think about Teresa of Avila. I, I know she's also very well loved by many, many people, but the, the, the sort of even the concept of an interior castle, which uh, Teresa writes about, is complicated. Like we don't really engage castles anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, there's something very real, if you will, about Julian of Norwich that I think is very uh, important. And I think finally, like I said before, you know, the fact that she it, it starts from a, a kind of point of hopefulness is something that it has really uh, been appealing to people. Well, uh, this is not a question for now, but I want to put a pin in it for maybe never uh, <laughs> and just say, and just ask the question though, you've done a lot of work on the German mystics. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious what overlap don't again, don't answer this now. We will, we will blow way past our three hour mark. Yeah, um, right. But, but <laughs> right. what is it about, I mean, cause I've got some suspicions about why mysticism might particularly appeal to a 20th century audience like T.S. Eliot, like Iris Murdoch. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I have a, I also suspect that there might be good contextual or and historical reasons why someone might uh, celebrate mysticism at the time of the German mystics. And so what what kinds of things do you think those are, if we can even speak of things like contextual matters when it comes to the emergence of mysticism and, and their, its enduring relevance for certain times? But in any case, um, maybe if we have time, let's come back around to is there anything about the 20th century that you particularly think makes Julian popular? Okay. So pin in that, uh, okay. but very, very, cause that, that would obviously require a bit of an extra thought. So maybe while we're talking about something else or while I'm talking, you can formulate that response. <laughs> um, okay. When did you, um, I would ask, is this apex mountain? Is this the, is this the <laughs> pinnacle of her career? But it's the only thing we have. Isn't that right? Well, I was going to say, yeah, in this case, it's a pretty easy, you know, question right. to answer. And so for those of you, those of you who are listening and, you know, you're like, oh, I, you know, I know with the podcast I'm doing with Amy Welburn, like we're, we're working on these lists of important, like spiritual films or spiritually significant films. And we've had people reach out and say, hey, I'm, I'm formulating a list. I'm going to watch these films. These are kind of in my queue on Netflix or whatever. So if we have any listeners who are doing the same with books, the one really encouraging thing about Julian Norwich is that if you've read Revelations of Divine Love, you've, you know, you're now you're an pretty expert. much an expert. Yeah, you, you've, you've done the whole corpus, right? Um, and, and it is, the, you know, one thing about this book is that it, it's not hard to read. It's very complicated and dense. Don't get me wrong, but it's not hard to read. I mean, and, and, um, and so, you know, it's this really, it's a landmark text. It's the only text that we know or the only uh, sort of collection that we know that she wrote. 
And so therefore it makes a great sort of point of entry. It's good for devotional study. And so it has to be then her apex mountain. Yeah. You were speaking my language. I was thinking about yeah. trying to tackle the dogmatics and I'm so glad you gave me something digestible <laughs> and short that I can now say that I'm going to be an expert in Julian of Norwich. Uh, and I was a little worried about Thomas coming up and the sumo, yeah. but you know, we can, we can let that, let that go as well. <laughs> um, right. Okay. So I want to put these, um, I want to put these two questions together, if that's okay. Yeah. I, the, the two questions are, uh, when did you first read this book and when you read it, why did it matter to you? Yeah. So interestingly enough, I read this and I remember this one pretty well, though. I, I don't know. I don't know for sure the course. Okay. So let me be clear about that. But I definitely remember where I read it. I read it when I was working on my MDiv and I was studying under a guy named Steve Long, who's now uh, the McGuire University professor of ethics at SMU in, in Dallas. And Steve assigned, and again, I think it was systematic theology. I'm not positive. It could have been a different course than him, but he assigned revelations of divine love. Um, and it was a really interesting choice because, you know, Steve, he's not sort of an expert on, on Christian spirituality. That's not kind of his jam, if you will. And, he, and he, he assigned this text, I think, for very specific reasons, because he wanted us to see that, uh, that, that you know, Christian spirituality, whatever else it is, is a reflection on the incarnation, on the incarnation of Christ, right? The second person of the Trinity and how, you know, God takes flesh, right? And becomes man, as it says in, in the Gospels, right? And that Julian of Norwich provides, uh, I, I think, a really profound exposition on the person and nature of Jesus. And as I recall, we read it in a systematic theology course with a section during a section on the person and nature of Jesus. So that's where I encountered it. Now, the, the separate question is like, okay, so why did it make an impression on you? Um, and I think there's a I have three reasons that I kind of jotted down. Okay. And so one of these, you're probably not going to be surprised about Clark, but maybe the other ones will, will be uh, interesting to you. But so first of all, I mean, I, as I mentioned last week, I grew up in, I guess you might say kind of liberal Protestant environment uh, in a suburban United Methodist church outside of Birmingham. And so our church, uh, you know, despite all the controversy swirling around Alabama politics right now, which you want to talk about, that's the podcast we need to do, Clark. We might actually blow up if we did that podcast. Uh, but uh, I might blow you know, up if we did that podcast. <laughs> I, I might right. just like cease to exist and be like crossing the beams and Ghostbusters. I might, you might, you might think this is a two-person podcast and then find yourself leading it by yourself after that conversation. <laughs> right. Well, it's very, it's a very thorny issue. But uh, putting that off to the side for right now. But you know, I, I grew up again in a very mild. This is not the kind of fire and brimstone evangelicalism that I think people sometimes associate with the Southeast. I grew up in a very mild church. It was very rationalistic. Like we don't want to say anything that couldn't be established, you know, by scientific methods or at least agreed upon by historians and so on. Uh, we, my church was culturally assimilated, right? It was not really the kind of place where it was sort of trying to buck the system. It was a place where, you know, it, you know, you went to church on Sunday and you talked about the football games on Saturday, right? Uh, and then it was also very ethically driven. So I mean, one of the core kind of aspects of United Methodism growing up was, and I, I, mean, I mentioned this last week, was, you know, hey, you know, be nice to your neighbor. You know, don't talk bad about people, you know, uh, you know, open the door for old ladies at the grocery store. I mean, these, these kind of things. Right. And, and so I'm not saying any of that was bad. But when I encounter a text like Revelations of Divine Love, you know, especially as I'm working through, you know, a master's degree and it's so focused uh, on the, the sort of suffering of Christ and the suffering of humanity. And it's really vivid at times. And I'll come back to that. 
and it can't even be disturbing that, you know, it's hopeful. Yes. But you know, Julian, it's a hard earned hopefulness that Julian's mm-hmm. going for. And so as I read through this text, I was like, wow, this Christian mysticism is not playing around, right? This is not, you know, open the door for the old lady at the grocery store. I mean, this is, this is uh, operating on, on a really challenging uh, level and it, and it kind of grabbed my attention. And there's clowns. Um, I mean, yeah. they, they're joking around. I mean, with that. To be clear, there's no clowns in the talks, okay? <laughs> no, I know. But, <laughs> okay, so the other thing I think that was really memorable to me was that, and this is, I think, was Steve's intentions, right? Was that Julian takes what are otherwise, you know, I guess it, it might seem to be abstract theological and Christological ideas, right? About, let's say, Jesus's uh, nature, the, the so-called hypostatic union, right? This idea that, that Jesus is both, God and man, right? And and these are, as it were, indivisible, right? Um, You know, Julian takes these abstract theological and Christological principles, and then she really unpacks them in terms of her own lived experience uh, and her own encounter with Christ. Uh, And so suddenly I was like, oh, right. Like, so theology and spirituality are not like separate domains, right? But they're actually sort of working together. It's not a matter of like, well, some people are like really into like dogma and doctrine and the, the sort of, you know, the, the core tenets of the faith. And then other people over here are like really into spirituality, kind of like our college humor, you know, sort of discussion earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we typically have this kind of bifurcation of like doctrine and spirituality. But Julian struck me as trying to kind of, not just trying, but like literally expressing how these are intimately connected and intertwined in some sense. And I, I, that, that was definitely for me a kind of, I, I guess maybe a, an impetus to start thinking about Catholicism because it occurred to me that in Protestantism, there was this kind of typical, like you either go to like the Pentecostal kind of evangelical like praise church, or you go to like these sort of staid, uh, very maybe doctrinally rigorous, but maybe in another sense, very culturally assimilated kind of you know, liberal Protestant churches and I was, and it's something about like, I was like, well, what about spirituality? What about, what about, you know, praying in front of crucifixes and, and rosaries and these kind of things? Like, I just, it just kind of fascinated me and it made me want to explore it more. Mm-hmm. And then I would say, finally, and this is the one that I don't think will come as a surprise to you. I mean, I've just had a longstanding interest in people who kind of just go all the way for in, in their faith. And, you know, Clark, you, I know, you know, cause you, you helped blurb for my, my novel. I, I recently came out with this novel, Man of Pain. Um, and it's not about an anchorite, um, but it is about somebody who's fascinated by this kind of like existential commitment to the gospel. Somebody who sort of lives it out in every possible way. And I think, you know, my interest in this subject matter can be traced back to encountering these kind of texts. Now, it wasn't just Julian Norwich for me. It was also, you know, the elders of Sima, one of the major characters in Brothers Karamazov, or it was the writings of Soren Kierkegaard, who's my sort of research specialization. So, you know, these are uh, all kinds of sort of influences, but yes, I mean, Julian's status as this woman who was, you know, as it were, living death, right, um, connected to this church, living out her faith. That was something that really uh, struck me as, as fascinating. Okay, so the text itself, uh, what is this thing about? Yeah, right. Okay, so one of the things that I, I got to get a couple of, you know, kind of methodological points out of the way, unfortunately, but this is just how this medievalism, you know, sort of goes. 
So, you know, when you come when it comes to Julian Norwich's work, right? This this book, Revelations of Divine Love. If you want to find it on Amazon, that's what you would Google. Okay, but in reality, it's actually two works. Okay, all right. So there is a short text, and by the way, these are usually included together in any kind of copy you'll get of the book. But there's the short text, which was preserved uh, in a copy from the mid 1400s, and then there's the so-called long text which is actually four times longer than the short text. Uh, and it survives in three manuscripts that were found or disseminated after the Reformation. So obviously significantly later. Now, one of the things I learned and kind of thinking about this today, and again, this, this is not my area of specialization. I'm, I'm sort of working on the fly here. I did not know this, but it's really fascinating, actually. Um, if you're a curious person anyway, I, I, I certainly am. But one of the things that scholars have tried to figure out is like how is how are the how is the short text related to the long text? So one theory would be something like okay, you know there was the long text first, and then somebody kind of chipped off you know or, or sort of you know summarized the short text and then released it as Julian's work, right? In some sense, um, but other scholars have said no, 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 that doesn't really work. Actually, it appears because the short text has certain. Um, autobiographical details that the long text uh, omits. Another theory is that the short text was kind of written immediately, maybe after her, her you know, sort of experience of God that is given, uh, the date has been given as May 1373. So one idea is that the short text was written sometime soon after that. And then later in her life, as she aged, Julian then expanded on uh, or, or added a kind of interpretive commentary to a scribe or somebody who wrote down her experiences and that that constituted the long text. So this is the reason why this is important to note is that if you pick up Revelations of Divine Love, you're going to have to ask yourself, do I want to read both of them immediately? Do I just want to read one? Um, you know, I think the short text, because it's so short, I would say can be taken more as a synopsis. If you want the, the whole kit and caboodle, you need to go to the long text, right? And when I say it's long, I mean, it's not long in the way that we might think of, I don't know, uh, you know Infinite Jest. Did you ever read that, Clark? David no. Foster Wallace, right? right? No. You know, like that's a long book, okay? <laughs> Julian's Julian's uh, long text is not nearly that long. Um, it's divided into 87 chapters, and that seems like a lot, but they're all really, they're all, you know, quite concise. I mean, they're not, these are not long, lengthy chapters with footnotes and the whole thing. Um and that these 87 chapters contain an autobiographical introduction, and then they have 16 revelations or shoeings. Okay, now she she doesn't sort of give equal weight to all of the revelations. I mean, some some of the revelations um, will have, you know, several, if not you know, 20ish or so uh, chapters dedicated to them, right? And other revelations only constitute maybe just one or two chapters or something like that. So. It's not sort of evenly or systematically dispersed, but just note that there are several dozens of, of chapters that are divided between these 16 different revelations. Mm. Okay. Does that make sense yep, so far? It does. Okay. So here's the thing. I'm not going to go through all the revelations, all right? But I do think I need to highlight a couple of them, right? I mean, you know, you can find summaries of them actually in the text itself. She provides at the outset a, a kind of summary of the whole work which is I think sort of typical of medieval writing in some ways. Um, and what we know is basically this, okay? She had these revelations during a severe bout of illness during which she was so sick that she received the last rites, right? Which is 
a sacrament in the Catholic church. So she expected to die and those around her expected her to die. Then after going through this, this sort of bodily travail, which she claims that she felt was a gift from God and was uh, uh, something that was allowing her to kind of, if, if you will, access the depths of God's love in a, in a very real way that she recovered. And then she found herself gazing upon this kind of shining cross and this moment of, you know, sort of, I guess, relief, but also bliss, um, having passed through this kind of dark night, this sickness, and then now coming back to the other side, she felt this need to tell people what she saw. Um, I don't want to go so far as to call this like a near death experience. I feel like I, the way I just said that kind of gives gives you that, that sense. I, I don't think that's anything that, I mean, if it was, then it may be only in the kind of Vegas sense, uh, not, not like in the, what's that movie? Heaven is for real. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. <laughs> right. I don't think it's along those lines, right. Where there was, um, you know, uh, you know, she was actually dead and then came back to live as that, uh, family, I think claimed about the, 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 the boy in that, in that story, but in any case, she was very sick and she had these, um, deep, uh, shoeings, these revelations. And she came back later to sort of, uh, as it were summarize them for everybody. Okay. I'm going to throw out just a handful of these revelations. Okay. Okay. The first revelation I think is important because in it, Julian says that Jesus gave her a sign, a sign of God's love. And she, and famously she compares it to quote, uh, the size of a hazelnut. It's a, it's a little thing she says, but this little, this little sense that, that the world is intimate and that God kind of cares for the world as if it's this very small and kind of, you know, breakable thing, this fragile thing. And uh, Julian, I think, sort of beautifully kind of summarizes God's, the way God looks at the world. It's this thing that has to be cared for in a certain sense. And she comes back to this in the third revelation, where she says that she realized then that God is present in everything that we do, and God is present in all things. This is a big aspect of her thinking, and I think it raises huge theological questions about providence and God's nature, but she doesn't really shy away from those. I, I should point out, too, that as a woman, I, again, I'm sure there's scholarship on this, but as a woman, and she's quite careful to not contravene church teaching. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to imply that she wanted to contravene church teaching. I, I don't get the sense that she did, but you get the sense that she does want to make sure that she's clear that she's following Catholic teaching about God and the Trinity in the most faithful way. Um, and she says that um, quite clearly. And I think her section on uh, on the third revelation makes that makes that pretty um, evident. Uh, that desire evident. Okay, another one, the seventh revelation. Uh, in this one, she says, and I think in a very, like I said earlier, a very real way, she says that she couldn't understand why the spiritual life has so much sorrow in it, in addition to joy. And she ends up saying that it was revealed to her that this is best for us, right? That we're not always going to, you know, we're not always going to be happy. We're not always going to feel God's presence all the time but that the spiritual life comes to us in these kind of alternating waves and that this is actually for our benefit. So I think that's a really uh, powerful section. Mm -hmm. There's the eighth revelation uh, in which Julian uh, comes face to face with the terror of Jesus's death. Um, and this reminded me a lot of Dostoevsky's reflections on um, Hans Holbein's The Dead Christ, which is a famous painting. If anybody's ever, uh, as a moment, you know, Google that image. Um, that it's, it's a, it's a very, as Dostoevsky describes in the idiot, his, his novel, it's a sense in which 
Christ isn't just dead, but like where you can kind of sense the redemption coming. <laughs> it's like Christ is dead, like rigor mortis is setting in. And that this deeply shook Dostoevsky. Well, this is almost very similar to what Julian describes here in the eighth revelation, that she had this kind of terror, terror of seeing a world without Christ, right? But of course, that's, that, that's not where the story ends with her. And then as, as she kind of comes towards the end of her revelations, the 13th revelation um, is one that's, that's very lengthy, sort of drawn out in a very lengthful way, or lengthy way, I should say. And she says, look, you know, Christ's atonement of human sin and the, the, the sort of process of leading to the atonement and to the redemption of humanity is greater and more beautiful uh, than sin itself. Uh, and th this is, I believe, the section where she has the famous quote that all things shall be well, right? And there's this kind of emphasis in Julian that, that you know, despite all of the struggles and, and problems that human beings go through, despite fallenness, despite all of the, uh, the hurt and the hatred in our world, that, quote, all things shall be well. Uh, and then finally, there's the 14th revelation in which Julian says that God looks on our prayers with mercy. And she says here that, you know, God is both our father and our mother. Uh, and so all of these things come together. And I'm going to anticipate your next question, Clark, because I just I know we, we need to be careful of time. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's a beautiful and captivating and really theologically rich book. I mean, you could you could read it over and over again and think about connections to uh, major uh, sort of aspects of the doctrine of God and who God is and so on. And if you're thinking about like, okay, well, I'm reading all this stuff. What are the weaknesses? I mean, I think in a way I would say, you, first of all, you have to not, you have to understand that this is not a normal book in, this, in the way we think about modern texts, right? It wasn't written with an argument in mind. It wasn't laid out to sort of make sense to all people. You know, it, it's kind of a, a vouch saving of Julian's in, interior life. Um, and so it doesn't deal with these questions. It raises these really important issues, but doesn't deal with them systematically. And I think too, it's liable to leave the reader with a lot of, uh, you know, for example, on what grounds does she say God is father and mother? Is she saying, for example, oh, she's saying that God isn't father? No. Is she saying that God is only mother? No. But they, you, know, you can see how some people might try to, maybe might try to pull a kind of controversial meaning out of those kind of terms. Uh, and so I would say it's, it's a text that, you know, one might find oneself very quickly brought up into sort of certain controversies that are more you know, prominent today than it would have been in, in, in uh, Julian's time. But the way I see her claim about God as father and mother is that God is, is like our parents in all of the ways our parents express love for us. So there's a, there's a deep comfort in God that's very maternal, maybe a, a certain guidance that's also, uh, you know, you know present in God's nature and God's relationship to us that, that she sees as paternal, right? So there is all of it. God is all things to us in every way. And God loves us in every way. And that's what she's trying to bring out. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, let me, let me ask. I mean, so I am Joe Blow or Susie Q. Would that be the opposite? I guess anyway, Susie Q reader uh, right now. Why does this matter to me today? Well, I think, yeah, I think it matters for all the reasons that we gave earlier. And, um, you know, I think it, the, the first thing that you would say is that you know, it, it's a spiritual text. So it's an invitation into the lived experience of Christian faith. And so, um, you know, if, if one is a Christian, one can sort of you know, reflect on how this, this text impacts oneself or how one feels about it. But then also can, and again, offer these deep insights 
that Julian intended to be offered for the community for the sake of of, of people's trust and love of God. So, yeah, I think that's it. I mean, the, the world is tough, right? The world is tough. Uh, we see all these controversies today, and, and here's a, here's a voice who's sort of saying trust in God, you know. And I think that's a good enough reason. And given given the the time we have left, I'm going to stop there. But I mean, hit me with the categories real quick. But like. Yeah, it, it's a really profound, it's a heavy book, but it's also an optimistic book. And I think that's as good a reason as any. Well, I, I cited this, uh, or I noted this when we talked about Peeper earlier, that philosophy was learning to die. And in some respects, I wonder if it, uh, not to be unfair, not to limit the mystical tradition, which is obviously way too big to even be a thing. But but in some respects, mysticism may be about learning to live in light of God. Um, and mm. what that experience is like. And so I can imagine too, as you said, the um, if we are all going to suffer uh, and indeed have suffered and, and in some respects will continue to suffer, then then there is, uh, is it possible that there is a way, a Christian way of doing this? And is it possible that, um, that Julian of Norwich gives us insight into how to do that? And I think the answer to that is, is probably yes. Um, and so I think that's, uh, just to build on what you said, something that could be could be really useful. So, uh, yeah, with that absolutely. with that very light and airy thought, um, <laughs> would you recommend this book to your best friend from middle school, a random person uh, at a ballpark, or your least favorite colleague at work? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, my my take on this one is that look, we live in an era of spirituality. We live in the spiritual marketplace, as I think it was Wade, Wade Clark Ruth once wrote. So. You know, spirituality is something that appeals to our, our world today. We typically see it as detached from the church and institutional teaching and so on. So I think we could assume that like this book would appeal to people because it's spirituality. But at the same time, given Julian's insistence that her spirituality is a, a kind of extension of Christian teaching, I also think that, you know, how people relate to the two might be really complicated. I mean, after all, Clark, somebody might take all shall be well and be like, hey, you know, this is kind of antinomianism or whatever. You know, I can do whatever. All shall be well. Julian said so. So it's a uh, it's the kind of book that, again, is very complicated. But uh, sure, I think people will read it. Yeah. OK, uh, if you were to adapt it to the screen, what would be the genre? Now we're going to get. Rid OK, so this one's good. OK, because I first of all, I, it's a documentary. OK. Um, and look, in a way, I'm, I'm piggybacking on this 2005 film, Die Grosse Stille, uh, Integrate Silence, uh, which depicts the everyday life of Carthusian monks uh, in the French Alps at the Grand Chartreuse Monastery. Have you, have you seen that, Clark? No. Okay. It's like two hours. It, honestly, it's very peaceful. You should watch it. It starts off with like the, the tolling of a church bell and these snowflakes falling you know, on this monastery. And like next thing you know, you're just like, you're, it's, it's very peaceful. Okay. But here's the thing. We need a documentary about anchorites. Yeah, I mean, how interesting. Are, do anchorites even exist anymore? There probably are a few. Um, but I think a documentary of an anchorite or anchoress would be fascinating. Now, I've already thought of the problem here. The anchorite might reject this idea, right, that, that, that uh, his or her life is being, as it were, recorded or exposed for this documentary uh, so I did think another thing you could do is a kind of found footage film, a sort of docu style fictional film. I, anyway, th this is definitely a documentary because you know why? Because the life of an anchorite is, is fascinating and you don't really need to add too much to it. Okay. That question. might be the most depressing found footage <laughs> film ever. It's like, hey, what are they doing? They're looking through the window. Uh, what are they right. doing? Hey, they're looking through the window. Uh, I mean, have you seen the Croods too? 
No, I'm not. Okay, no. see, this is the difference. You you listen. You, I mean, you watch documentaries about uh, German monks, and I German titled films about Cartesian monks in the French Alps. And I watch Kurds too with my kids. Um, and in Kurds <laughs> too, uh, one of the kids discovers um, uh, these sticks that are put together. It's called and and you put it in the side of your house, which he's never seen a house before, uh, and he gets told it's a window. And so in this. Uh, in this basically image of the way people relate to television, he just sits there and stares out the window and he's like, I've got the launch <laughs> window. And this is what I feel like that documentary that you just made would be like. Uh, it's like, <laughs> hey, what's going on? Same thing. We're just looking out the window. Uh, okay. <laughs> and if that didn't make sense to you, no big deal. We'll move right along. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you're creating a Spotify playlist to accompany the reading of this book, where do you start? I mean, I, I'm nailing it this week, Clark. All right. So first of all, it's it's Bob Dylan's Visions of Johanna. <laughs> no way. It right? cannot be yeah. Bob Dylan. That's yeah, amazing. Right. Who but, could have guessed? But but here's I told you, I'm gonna do it every, every time it's gonna be Bob Dylan first. Visions of Johanna, though. Come on, Clark. How beautiful is that? Visions of Johanna, 1966. By the way, I recommend the live version, especially uh, the from from the from the tour in 1966. But I wrote about this song in my book, Bob Dylan and the Spheres of Existence. I'm not going to go into details now, but just to say that it is, it is a song that lends itself to a kind of spiritual or mystical interpretation. After all, uh, the, the name Joanna uh, or Johanna itself uh, has connotations of Jehovah, or God in some sense. So um, we'll, we're going to leave it at that. The next song I would add would be uh, Arvo Part, the Estonian minimalist mm. composer. Now we're talking, um, I, Chris. Yeah. Now we're cooking it, with gas. <laughs> His uh, his choral composition, Day for Fools. Yes. Uh, yes, that's a great one, yeah. Um, by the way, I, I put together a little playlist uh, on Spotify. If anybody wants to look, I, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm recording my, uh, and you should do the same if, you feel, if you're a fill-out for it. You should do your selections, I'll do mine. We can have dueling playlists. Uh, but um, in the next one, uh, the next one I have here, and this is the last one for today, is uh, God's Got It by Old Crow Medicine Show. Do you know Old Crow Medicine Show? I do not. Yeah. So they're kind of a, I guess, kind of a bluegrass sort of folk band. Um, I think they're based out of Nashville now, but they've been around a while. They had an album in 2006 called Big Iron World. I think it's their masterpiece. It's a really, really good album. Uh, and on it, there's a song called, called God's Got It. I always assume this is a traditional kind of gospel song. That's how kind of authentic and real it feels. I, I believe I've read now that it's not, that it's an original to them. Um, and it has the very simple line, if you want it, God's got it. God's got everything you need. So I think that's a pretty good summary of Julian of Norwich's uh, theology and spirituality. Okay, I'm, I have to tell you something that's, I think it's going to break your heart. And then it also might uplift you at the end. Um, <laughs> when we were at, at Oxford, and I'm going to speak as though you're not listening, Chris. Um, <laughs> I, Chris talked so much about Bob Dylan that one day, uh, I didn't have kids at this point. Um, and so I said, I said, cool, I'm going to grab a couple of beers. It's, it was a Friday. I'm, I'm going to grab a couple of beers and I am going to listen to Bob Dylan because I'd never really listened to Bob Dylan before. And Chris, I'll never forget your response. You were like, that sounds like the best evening imaginable. <laughs> You're like, I'm, you said, I'm actually jealous. Like I actually want to go through the experience of listening to Bob Dylan for the first time with a couple of beers on a Friday night. It's true. That's a, that is a good experience. That's mystical itself. Well, 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 hang, hang on. That, that, I haven't gotten to the punchline yet. <laughs> um, I made it through two songs. <laughs> I made it through two songs of the album you recommend. I was like, nope, that's great. Um, I'm, I'm good. 
um, and I didn't. Which listen. album was it, Clark? Oh, man, dude, remember? I don't remember. That was like 15 years uh, ago. I don't remember. Well, you obviously didn't give it a good chance. <laughs> I, that's all I got to say. Gave it a good chance. <laughs> the, the, but to, but then to to counteract it, let me also say though that his second his second um, song, "Day Profundus My Arvo Parrot," is one of my favorite songs that I've ever heard. Uh, if you have not, dear listener, listen to Arvo Parrot for. Um, I don't want to say it's relaxing, um, but for pensive, um, holy minimalist uh, pieces, then you should absolutely check out uh, Arvo Parrot. He is the best. So wholehearted thumbs down to Bob Dylan, wholehearted thumbs up <laughs> to Arvo Parrot. Great. Okay. Well, the, the takeaway, and before before I give the takeaway, because I know that's the next category, the last category, but let me just say about De Profundis, not all versions uh, of the song are the same mm. uh, and, and some are better than others. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to link my favorite to my playlist. And do you mean the different um, iterations might... of Parrot himself? Like, or do you mean like other authors who have, have taken on the, the arrangement? Yeah. Yeah. The, the arrangement mm-hmm. and uh, done by, you know, various, you know, choirs and groups and so on. Um, I think some of them seem to have a, I, I don't know exactly the kind of musical, reasons for this or or why one uh composer or, or conductor would, would would sort of approach the music in, in one way and the other would approach it a different way but they don't all have the same um i guess tempo that's, and that's exactly I, I think right. yeah and i and i think that the the, the slower tempo I, i've listened to a couple that are so slow that i think it takes away some of the urgency Dude, of the, the music i think it's the yeah. hilliard choir that does like an eight minute one and then there's another there's an estonian choir that does like a five minute and 38 second version and mm. the five minute one is del- delicious it is yeah it's delightful yeah, there's something I, I, to me when it's too slow. It, it's uh, I, I get it, it's meditative, but it, it does lack. I mean, it is out of the depths after all. I mean, that's what it means. Like it, it seems to lack some of the urgency. So that's my take. All right. Anyway, as for Julian, the ultimate takeaway is undoubtedly the most famous line in her book, but uh, but it also might be one of the more famous lines in the history of Christian mysticism, and it is follow. It is as follows: "Quote, all shall be well." And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That's the ultimate takeaway. All right, let's take a break. Clark, enjoy the discussion. Even though you, you completely punched me in the gut with yeah. the question about mysticism at the beginning. I'm gonna forgive you for that, Clark, because I know I know I, I know you care about friendship, and I'm gonna try to sort of you know, I'm I'm gonna see that as a gesture of friendship and not a you know trying trying to get me in trouble. I almost but, uh, texted you and said, hey, well, I'm, I wasn't trying to throw you into the bus. But I mean, hey, man, like, you got to speak you got to speak dummy to me when it comes to mysticism. So I was trying to help you speak dummy is what it was. All right. Well, let's let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll jump into uh, Rene Girard. All right. Sounds good. All right, welcome back to the back half of our discussion today. We just talked about Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love, and now Clark's going to dive into uh, a pretty fascinating figure in his, in his own right, Rene Girard and his book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. So, Clark, I toss it over to you. Yeah, by way of introduction, let me say th- th- it was a horrible mistake Uh to do Girard in the number seven spot, which I believe is where we are. Um, yes. Because he, 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 in my pantheon of books is way higher. Mm-hmm. And I actually only did not text you and say, Hey, I got to move this stuff around only because 
uh, in the name of, I, I just wanted to talk about him. So I was like, great. I'd rather talk about him early than late, but, <laughs> right. but in terms of actual where he ranks, it's so much higher. And, um, and so I just want to say, I, I probably, uh, I mean, I like Tilika fine. I like Schleiermacher fine. Uh, I love some of the books that are ahead of here, but, but right now Gerard is clearly in pole position in terms of my favorite text. Yeah. And, and I, and just knowing you, I, I was surprised you had it this low, but I also think the way you've approached your list is, and I mean, and mine too, to some extent as well, I think you've been a little bit more loosey goosey. I think you've been thinking more in terms of like, these are books that are important to me for these reasons, not necessarily like, this is the like this is a desert island book for you, right? This one is Tilika probably isn't. I think that's probably fair to say, right? I, I think that is very fair. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so tell us about Gerard. I mean, what's the? I mean, he's somebody just as as a side note, and you know this, but I don't know if our audience does, but he's somebody I also have a scholarly interest in. I'm actually working on a, a section and a chapter on Gerard right now, but I don't consider myself to be an expert in Gerard per se. I, I'm actually interested in his understanding of the apocalypse, which comes out in this very late book, Battling to the End. But you're interested in an earlier text and uh, one that I think is maybe more uh, essential to just getting a basic grip on what Girard is all about. So tell us a little bit about his background and, and why he's so important to us today. Yeah. So uh, and a quick aside that's, you know, the modern academy is, is predicated on expertise, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's come up a number of times in our discussion already as it pertains to Julian of Norwich, like the idea of a generalist. The idea of someone who um, not knows a little bit about a lot, but rather someone who probably knows a lot about a lot. Mm. Um, th those the, the academy does not value such people. Um, and I don't want to reveal anything, but I remember one time in grad school, um, Chris, you pointed out a man to me and he was at one of these kind of small conferences at Oxford and said uh, that one of our esteemed uh, mentors thought that that guy was the most well-read person that he'd ever met and had right, almost yeah. and had no higher higher education degrees uh, that I was aware of, but that yeah. basically he'd read everything and came to conferences just for fun, just to hear ideas. And I remember thinking that was so weird. Uh, mm. And of course, as I get older, I'm like, that's awesome. That is yeah. so much more awesome because- I know exactly uh, who you're talking about. And I believe that was in Sheffield that we encountered yeah. him. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. And, and, so, and so I say that to say, that, that Girard's one of these people um, that, that in academic study, I have not come across him in academic study, one of these people who's an actual genius in their own right, someone mm -hmm. who has thoughts that are genuinely original. And, and it sounds like false modesty, uh, but no matter how many degrees I got, no matter how much writing I would do, um, there's a certain extent to which everything I ever will write will be derivative. It might be a slight take uh, different than what has been said. It might be a slight advance. But it's not going to be an epic making or a um, a genre twisting um, or earth shattering change to the way that people think about these basic mechanisms in life. And Girard does that. Mm. So so when I say that to say he doesn't have training uh, in theology per se. He doesn't even have training in philosophy per se. He actually started out his academic career as a French historian. Um, who found himself in a position that so many of us do in which he was asked to teach, teach courses that he didn't know anything about. Um, and so he started teaching French literature uh, because where he was, where he got his first job, um, which I believe is at Bryn Mawr and, and at Duke respectively. I mean, he got a, 
couple of degrees, uh, different places. But, uh, but where he first started teaching, they didn't have somebody to teach it. And so they're like, Hey, will you do it? You're French. And he was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, and so this is what started his career as a literary critic. And this is in the 1950s. Um, he was born in 23 and died in, in 2015. Uh, so a very, very recent scholar. Um, he actually received a full, he, he became a full professor, uh, in, um, at, when he, or rather when he was at Johns Hopkins, he mm. traveled back and forth between SUNY Buffalo and Johns Hopkins for the early part of his teaching career. And then the, the, the section of his career that, that I think most people are, are most famous or that he's they're most familiar with him for, uh, is his Stanford period. Uh, yeah. so he moved to yeah. Stanford in 1981, taught there until he retired in 1995. Um, in terms of uh, and of course, by the time he'd gotten to the 1980s and, and took his chair at Stanford, as you might imagine, by virtue of him having a chair at Stanford, um, he had published a couple of really, really uh, significant books, namely uh, Violence in the Sacred, which I, I believe came out in 1972, um, and Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, which came out in 78. Um, and so to to put forward two pretty enormous texts like these in the 70s, earned him his chair in the 80s, and then he publishes I see Satan fall like lightning um, in French in 1999 and um, in English in, in 2001. So it is a very, very, in the, in the scope of uh, Girard's corpus, it's, it's really late. Um, so, so yeah. Let me interrupt real quick. I mean, so yeah, you know, I don't want to give too much exposition, but like violence in the sacred, you know, is the kind of book you could read the whole thing and, it's very relevant to religion and sort of cultural life, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't really think of it as being theological at all. I mean, it's very much kind of cultural anthropology. Then things hidden since the foundation of the world definitely starts moving more in that kind of theological direction, but it's this massive text, right? right. But I see Satan fall like lightning is, is it fair to call that a kind of pricey, like a kind of summary of his yeah. thoughts to date? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and this is going to veer a little bit into it is the book, the pinnacle. Um, yeah. And that's going to be really, so, yeah. but, but I do think it's worth mentioning here. Um, actually, this is going to veer into all sorts of questions. I think uh, Girard's I See Satan Fall Like Lightning is, is essentially the culmination of okay. almost yeah. everything that's come before. And it's a handbook version. Um, it is accessible. The, the print's not super small, and it's still like you know, 150, 200 pages. Mm. Um, and it is everything um, summarized. That, that you get in violence in the sacred and things hidden since the foundation of the world. So, so just by way of a personal example, I taught a course recently um, and, and assigned uh, significant portions of I see Satan fall like lightning. And then I had some of the same students in uh, another course and I used violence in the sacred just because I didn't want to reuse the same text that they'd already, they'd already read the semester before and, you know, reading for them in reverse, I see Satan fall like lightning first. Uh, and then violence in the sacred, they're like, well, yeah, but we know all this. And they got a real sense, which I imagine many of our readers would as, or I mean, our listeners would as well, that, that in violence in the sacred, it's almost like he's showing his work and it's the very, very tightly argued, um, literary, mythical, uh, religious. And when I say religious, I mean like, um, in an anthropological sense an ethnic yes, sense, right. like exactly. how do rituals function in the world? Um, and where do we see them? And so he's talking about tribes all over the world and, and where these things appear. Once we get to Isis 8 and fall like lightning, you know, 30 years later, he is, he has moved to the application phase. It is, it's not uh, real, um, 
tightly argued. In fact, I think he, he jumps over some things that if you've read Violence in the Sacred and you've read Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, it makes perfect sense. If you haven't, you're kind of like, wait, okay, how did he go here and here and here? So so I, I do actually think it, it, it it's pretty close to being a praisey um, of what he's done before, but I, I it's so readable. I mean, it is, I, I really do find it to be so much more accessible than, than either Violence in the Sacred or uh, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. So, so it's a pinnacle of a sort then it, it's like maybe the it's yeah it's it's the pinnacle of his accessibility which makes perfect sense to me i mean you know, switching over in terms of like your own engagement with this text i mean did you start with i see satan fall like lightning and then move back to the the kind of heavier like you said kind of cultural anthropology of the previous works or what mm. was it the other way around where, where, where how did you get into this text no um in another name drop i actually encountered this text when i was um, doing a, a master's of theology at bright divinity school at, at tcu and there's a professor there by the name of charles bellinger who i think we both know and uh Bell i don't know him personally but i definitely know his work and i like it yeah he's, he's right because he, he did work on yeah. kierkegaard if i'm not mistaken yeah. too right he, okay. yeah that's right um so so he did a class on religion and violence and uh, I teach a course of religion and, and, and violence at Shriner now, and uh, I basically imported significant portions of his course because up to that point, it was the best class I'd ever been in. Mm -hmm. um, and so he introduced me to Girard. He had uh, rather eclectic interests in Eric Vogelin and, and Rene Girard, uh, among others. So um, he assigned it. And it, honestly, when I read it, it didn't actually hit. I, I didn't understand what was so important about it until we started unpacking piece by piece what was being said and uh gerard it reading gerard i would i would liken to the way you describe listening to bob dylan in which um the the a number of eurekas the number of lightning bulb bulbs that go off in your head as you realize the implications of what he's saying um is sheer intellectual pleasure um, mm -hmm. and that may be a, way, a weird way of describing it but um, it, it's some of the best reading, the most enlightening reading that I had ever done. Um, and so I think segueing to part of what made it matter, and I've alluded to this um, already, is it, it mattered to me because I have, there are these huge, I don't want to say gaps, but when I, uh, I, I grew up in a, in a very, very, um, I would say, again, I've said this before, lowercase e evangelical um, church community where the reading of the biblical text was um, um, I, the highest thing in many respects that one could do. So mm -hmm. I, in my whole life, I've been pretty well schooled in the, in the biblical text. And that doesn't mean I know it exhaustively or that I can quote enormous portions uh, for you. But, but the life in light of the text, I, I feel, is, a, is an adequate description for, for the way that I've experienced church. And there are these places in scripture that don't make sense to me. And when I say they don't make sense, it's not that I don't understand what was literally being said or how it fit in with a certain kind of narrative, but I couldn't understand why people did what they did. And no amount of reflection on, on, on the story would, would take me to a place where I was like, Oh, that makes sense. Right. Um, and can you give an example? Yeah. I mean, like, well, like, like concretely. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, places that Gerard notes, um, like where he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Mm -hmm. um, and this is coming right after Peter has 
given the proclamation, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So here's Peter, who's the shining example of faithfulness, the first one to kind of make the proclamation of, of Christ's, um, of Jesus's um, kind of cosmic significance, if you will. Um, and then he turns around and, and is called Satan. Now, I, there are all sorts of ways you could read that. You could read that as just a, a very simple, you know, oh, how, I mean, you could read it, read that any number of ways. I think actually Gerard makes great sense of this. Um, and we can, we'll talk about that shortly. But um, another thing would be something like even a Judas character, uh, someone who has walked with Jesus this entire time in his ministry and yet bet betrays him for silver. And I mean, again, the text, try the text, some versions give you an explanation. You know, he loved money. He was stealing from the treasury. He was basically greedy, but that that's hard to, it seems to me that's hard to swallow. If you've been walking with Jesus for three years, I think in, in contrast, I mean, Gerard gives you a very clear, um, rationale for how that could be the case how that would actually make sense um so so it know. seems like what you're saying and i mean this this kind of lends itself to the the, the next question you know about like okay so what's what's this text uh mm -hmm. you know centering on but it, it feels like what you're saying in a way is that gerard provides us with a kind of interpretive key to not yes. just i mean we, we we can see it as as in relation to scripture as you're just now saying but it's not just scripture right it's really to everything it's to to culture um it's to all religions uh and i know that for some gerard scholars i mean that this can be a, a difficult point of contention i mean there might be some concerns that he's kind of universalizing his theory which i know you're about to get into uh but it sounds like the reason why this really meant a lot to you was that he sheds unique light on not just again the bible but also the entire christian life and really maybe our world in general and that you see him as offering a tool to help you come to grips with or to understand these really complex topics i think that's exactly right he makes sense of the world in a way that few other authors ever have uh and mm -hmm. and i would say then it, by extension the biblical text, which I think is, in many respects, an interpreter of human experience itself, um, an articulation of human experience in light of in light of God, that that even there, I mean, Cain and Abel doesn't make sense. Like if you if you read Cain and Abel, and or I shouldn't say it just by de facto doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me as a reader when I was like, wait, he offered a sacrifice, so he, God didn't like it and <laughs> right. he just killed him. Like, or even Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, so you listen to the crafty serpent and the next thing you know, you're kicked out. I mean, what are they thinking? Like just these these moments where it's kind of like, you, again, you know what's going on, but you don't know what's going on. And Rene Girard at least offers an account of this that makes sense of of my own experience, but then also the biblical um, account of human experience in such a way that I, I've read very little like it. Um, and again, I, I want to be curious be very clear, I don't actually think that Girard is the, the interpretive key, the hermeneutic key to all human existence. But I think he does isolate a couple of areas that are that are highly culturally relevant. And even what he offers at the end of the no, uh, novel, at the end of the book, um, the, our twofold Nietzschean heritage and the modern concern for the victim. I mean, these are phenomenal interpretations written in, again, 1999, that diagnose exactly where we are in 2024, which is insane um, that, he, that his theory, I think, could be so uh, useful. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a Girard fanboy. What can I say?
<laughs> well, I, you know, and, and again, I don't want to anticipate too much here because I know you're about to talk about mimetic theory. But, you know, when I, when I think about Girard's significance in, in a, kind of a postmodern world, mm-hmm. one of the things that he does that's mm-hmm. unique and, and I think very influential is that he takes he takes Christian claims, theological claims in the Bible very seriously and he sees that Christianity is in dialogue with really all of human culture and human history. And he thinks that Christianity offers something that is, in fact, redemptive, not just in the kind of sense that maybe somebody would say, I believe Jesus saved me from my sins, but rather Jesus saves us from our sins because of these deeply ingrained cultural patterns that lead to violence and murder and hatred and these kind of things. And so he sort of accounts for Christian claims for redemptive importance while also not being, if you will, kind of in, enslaved to a, uh, uh, you know, an older form of believing that, that just by my faith, I'm, 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 go- I'm good with God, even if the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Like he's, he's, he's sort of saying, no, 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 redemption's deeper than that. You know, uh, and in fact, Christianity is redemption is is cosmic and it's in its revelatory you know sort of power and i think that's what this book is about right yeah absolutely it's yeah. it is i do think it's about communities I, at the yeah. end of the day it's not i mean it could be the created world it could be individuals but i, I it's very i would imagine and i, I would imagine it's very hostile to a, a super individualistic way of thinking about salvation exactly. because right. that very individual notion of salvation actually would will provoke the very thing that he's saying christianity diffuses um mm-hmm. and so you know we, we probably need to get in that pretty quick um, and i was going to say and you brought us right to that point so what is this book about in just a few minutes yeah yeah so <laughs> And Chris, I'm going to rely on you a little bit to 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 interpret and interrogate accordingly, because one of the things that makes me nervous about about talking about this text is that there are so many um, unique ways and terms that that Girard uses um, both the biblical text and, and human experience and ritual that that. Once you get the language, it's a lot easier, but until right. you get the language, what it's going to feel like perhaps is that I'm, I'm using a whole lot of jargon. So, so Chris, help me um, as, as we make some sense of this. But I would say that the starting point where, where Girard starts is, is an idea of scandal. Um, and from the Greek, scandalizine is this idea of, of a stumbling block, that mm-hmm. is something that stands in your way. And... Uh, the the reason that this matters, the reason that scandal matters is because human beings are what he calls mimetic creatures. And, and mimesis is this idea of imitation. So we're not just imitators in terms of, hey, um, I like the way that her hair looks, so I'm going to style my hair similarly. It's much, much, much worse. And it is that we like to think that we desire certain things because of their intrinsic goodness or because we are good or I don't know, maybe we invert it and we say it's bad and we want to be bad or whatever. But, but Girard's main theory is that we don't really desire anything until we see somebody else desire it. Mm-hmm. So at the heart of human life is competition. And let's be reminded here there is no human life outside of community. So, you know, it's not like you could ever, we, we have this individualist illusion in modernity, like, oh no, well, I'm my own person. I decide things. No, 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 no. 
we have always been a part of communities from the very part since we were born. We grow up within communities. And even if we don't identify them, we're around, we, we are social creatures by design. So we learn to imitate what other people are doing, whether that's language, whether that's clothes we wear, whether that's goals we have in our life. Um, and so because, or do you want to ask a question at this point or do you want me to? No, well, not, not necessarily. I was going to say that. I mean, you know, to me, the kind of catchphrase, you were mentioning the jargon. I mean, the catchphrase here then is that Girard is a, is a theorist of, of mimeticism, right? Mm -hmm. Of mimesis, right? Yes. Which, which is related to this, you know, this word imitation, right? So that, that like you said, much of the kind of impetus in our culture for like movement activity, you know, both good and bad, uh, it comes from our desire to do things and have things that other people have and do. Yeah. I mean, you can look at commercials and see this in a nutshell. It's, yeah, it's so right. clear. It's like, Hey, you know, be your own, like Gator. I, I always pick on Gatorade commercials and like sports commercials, like be your own person, <laughs> do your own thing. And don't do your own thing because we want you to buy our product and be just like our commercial. Right. Like it's, <laughs> right. The, the, right. There's an inherent contradiction here. Um, and so, but, but we're, we're, and of course you and I can laugh about it, but the reality is that, that we're doing it all the time right. where um, even we are, are in some respects locked up into um, this same cycle. So, so why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because if everybody is derivative in what they're desiring, what happens when the we say imitate me uh, to somebody else and they imitate us, but then now they're seeking the same thing that we're after. And mm -hmm. as soon as they're seeking the same thing that we're after, we now are in competition. Um, and the person that one is imitating now becomes a scandal. They become an obstacle to our, to our success. Um, and so this is one reason why, um, among others, that, that Gerard spends a whole lot of time um, talking about uh, warring or dueling brothers in mythology and in literature, because it, it is so basic. And I already referenced it before, uh, but Cain and Abel should be bros. They're the only right. two people on the earth, it seems. Uh, and they're both offering sacrifices to the same God. They've got the same parents. Why would they fight? And yet, again, Gerard makes very clear, no, 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 no. It's because they're so similar that they fight. That's it. Right. You don't fight with people who are actually different than you. You fight with people who resemble you. And they uh, want the same thing. They want God's, they want God's right. approval. They want the right. same thing. Uh, and so this is why Romulus kills Remus. Uh, it's why it's Cain and Abel. It's Jacob and Esau. Um, I can't think of any others off the top of my head. I have a brother who's a year and a half younger than me, and he's bigger and stronger and faster than me. Uh, and he's probably smarter than me. So, you know, you can imagine a year and a half. I mean, we didn't go a day without fighting. Well, why? I mean, we're very good friends today. But in, interestingly enough, we're friends in part because there's distance between us too. Like it's, uh, and I'm sure Tyler's actually listening to this. So, you know, I, we'll, we'll, find out, we'll find out whether that's offensive or not. But like, it, we now it, know that Clark wanted to kill his brother for a long time. Well, I, I think there's evidence both ways. Anyway, um, but, but the point is that that's the closer you are and the more similar you are, the, the worse you're going to fight. Um, and I think this is something that, that again, Bellinger, I mean, Bellinger, excuse me, Girard, uh, makes good sense of. So, so what happens in the mimetic crisis, because it's not just one, you're not just measuring up against one person. You're measuring up against everybody around you, mm -hmm. uh, to whatever extent that you mimic them and you take on your desires from them. So, so what happens is this conflict 
builds up more and more and more and more until it culminates in what Girard calls the mimetic crisis. And the mimetic crisis is when uh, you have actual violence. And that's when all of this imitation is building up so much that it has to go somewhere. And so at the point at which it has to go somewhere, um, this is where sacrifice begins. And what uh, particularly Girard introduces here, and this is part of this jargon, but I want to make it absolutely clear that we, I want to try to explain this as much as I can. This is where he introduces what's called the single victim mechanism. Mm. And the single victim mechanism is something that we all have experienced, even if we don't name it in this way. And that is when, when there is tension in a community, you've got to find a bad guy. Um, right. And it really doesn't matter if the bad guy is actually bad. <laughs> and the monster. Fact, that's right. The monster. It, yeah. Well, well, and here's what's really cool about this. Uh, the way sacrifice works is it's got to be somebody who looks enough like your rival that you they're worth killing. In other words, that it actually satisfies the need to let off the steam. But they can't be too much like you because then you might realize that they're not actually worthy of being killed. So it's this mm -hmm. weird liminal place. And, and, and again, I'm, I want to make this clear. He, he really he really pounds away at this in violence in the sacred. Yeah, um, I, was, and, I was just about to say that. Yeah. And he and he and he highlights, for example, the way that if you want to have an appropriate sacrifice, there's a period in which um, many tribal communities around the world historically have um they heap opprobrium, they heap hatred, they heap hatred, they put everything that's ugly and taboo onto this person, and then they sacrifice them. Um, mm -hmm. Because you, and then the person's held up as a kind of savior. That's well. right. Like our, that's right. And then, right. Yeah. And this is weird. This is I, this is yeah. a hard kind of thing to get our heads around. But but yeah. you, you basically have to um, make sure they're not innocent by heaping all this stuff on them. Then you sacrifice them and then you lionize them as, um, in some cases, Gerard argues in violence in the sacred, this is where the gods come from. Um, right. and that we actually make them into, and this is why so many gods and goddesses actually come from death. So, uh, he highlights in one of my favorites is, um, Tiamat from, uh, Babylonian, uh, early Babylonian mythology, Sumerian mythology, in which, um, you know, you, you have this basically demonic lady dragon water creature who Marduk slays, cuts up into pieces and from it grows the world. And in, in some ways, this is it. You've got a, you've got something scary. It's awful, but she's kind of part of the gods pantheon already. She's one of them. They, she is, but she is ugly. She's gross. She's dangerous. She's threatening everything. So Marduk kills her. And then from that grows everything that is, I don't want to say everything that's good, but much of what is good. Um, and, and this same thing is repeated over and over and over again in these early mythologies. So, so that's to say, uh, she's the, she, I don't want to push Tiamat too far, but she is the kind of single victim, um, for those that are familiar with, um, you know, biblical practice, this is why something unintelligible would happen where a priest um, would put the sins of the people on the goat and then commit the goat to God and send it out into the wilderness. It makes no the sense. Yeah, the scapegoat. Yeah. It makes no sense why you would do this um, unless, uh, like, how does a goat take away the sin of the people? But you know, again, Gerard makes, makes some sense of this, I think. Um, 
And so, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I want to, I want to make sure I, I, I direct you because I know you have to pick up a kid at school and I do too. <laughs> so <laughs> for anybody who's wondering about how real these conversations are, like we're like, yeah, I'm looking at the time here. I just got a few minutes. I think you're, you're coming down to it as well. So I definitely think you need to transition in this conversation to how does this, what's the Christian difference here? Cause I, I think you've laid out a, a really nice, like I would, I would be cribbing some notes from you on how you've unpacked this. But then it's like, okay, what do I do next? How do how, how does Gerard go from here to Christianity? Yeah. And then in doing that, like, does it? Yeah, what are some strengths and weaknesses related to that move? To okay, so the, yeah. the sum total, and this is also something that's unique to I see Satan fall like lightning, which is why it's a fantastic introductory text because he solves the problem in violence and sacred. He doesn't solve it, and things hidden since the foundation mm. of the world, more so, but not like he does in I see Satan fall like lightning. And the idea is this: that that this entire mechanism of a single victim which expiates the sin of the community and restores peace for a little while until it builds up again uh jesus breaks it he breaks the system uh and he breaks mm. it because um when the full force of the single victim mechanism is used on him who is actually the truly innocent victim then a key feature of the single victim mechanism, which is its secrecy, the fact that we can deceive ourselves from what we're doing, which is killing the innocent, uh, is unmasked because in his true innocence, it becomes evident that he was killed unjustly. So like when the gospels have the centurion who says, surely this man was the son of God. Uh, when the, the, the sky darkens and the veil tears in two, um, it's like, wait a second, this, we, we actually might have done something. We might've broken something here. Um, and Girard explains this through a very particular kind um, account of the atonement, which is called Christus Victor, in which case um, the salvation of, that Jesus enacts is one in which, of atonement is, is, is in which um, Satan is tricked into effectively defeating himself. Um, the classical image of this was basically uh, Christ is the bait almost and mm, hooks right. Satan and, and the fish him. hook. That's yeah. right. Um, and so when, and the reason that, that I'm bringing this up is because Gerard has a really interesting connection with Colossians one in which he says um, that he nails the principalities to the cross. Mm -hmm. um, and how do you make sense of this? Well, the powers and the principalities in Gerard's reading are, is the single victim mechanism that, that has been working throughout human history. Mm -hmm. And that in the killing of Jesus, mm -hmm. what is actually destroyed is the single victim mechanism itself, which he also calls Satan. Um, and so Satan is defeated. Um, in fact, there's a great quote, which I know since uh, this is the final thing I'll say about it, um, where Girard says, only Satan could have set in motion the process of his own destruction without suspecting that anything was wrong. Um, and I think that's a perfect summation of why Christians, according to Girard, should care about this, that the Christian community is the place where guess what no longer has to happen. It no longer has to happen that in order to let off communal steam or to, to there, there's no one to mimic except the person who is actually perfect, i.e. Mm -hmm. Christ. Uh, so to, to be a Christian is to be a little Christ, to follow, to imitate Christ. Um, and that, and that basically any other, we are now free from the obligation to participate in this kind of 
um, really gnarly sacrificial logic that has has dominated throughout human history. So yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 really well put. I mean, I, obviously, I mean, we we could go on and on, and I, I don't know if our audience will be excited that we're not going to go on and on, or or they'll wish we had more. Hopefully, they want more. But but it's it is such a complicated. Uh, it, it, in a lot of ways, it's just a complicated theory. But it, like you said, it does kind of boil down to this these really kind of core themes in the history of Christianity, which is you know follow Jesus, be a disciple, right? How d- disciple in what sense? A disciple by not participating in violent structures in our world, and so on and so forth. So it has this very concrete application, uh, and I and I suspect that you would sort of argue that like this is why it's like it goes back to your own influence uh, with the book, you know. It, the book helps make sense of things and it helps make sense of why uh, Christianity still, wor- you know, really matters in a secular world. Um, okay. Quickly then categories. All right. I, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you would recommend this to the, you know, to a lot of people, but maybe with a caveat, what do you think? Who Everybody. Would you recommend nope. it to? I, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an equal opportunity suggester on this one. Everybody <laughs> needs to read Gerard. Okay. All right. And if you're adapting it for the screen, what's your move? Like what, this is any you know, sports. I, I've decided this is any sports comeback movie. This morning I was laying awake in bed in a half days and I kept thinking about Rocky four. And um, <laughs> I, I kept thinking that this is Rocky four because you know, there, there's a rival it's Apollo Creed. Uh, and he imitated, but he, but he kind of loves Apollo Creed. And then guess what? Uh, then comes Ivan Drago and, and the, the, the model dies. And now we've got a new rival. And at the end, of course, how do you beat this insurmountable rival? Well, uh, you're different than him, of course, in reality. Is he all that different from Drago? No, not really. And then guess what he does? He beats Drago. He quote unquote changes and then becomes just like Drago. The final they're they're holding they're holding hands at the end and saying, you know, if I can change, you can change, you know, and all this (laughs) stuff. In other words, it's it's like it's just like almost anti-Girardian film. But I feel like this is the this is the logic of it's it's Joseph Campbell. It's the whole thing. It's the hero's journey as well. It's it's um, it's you've got to overcome something to become who you are. And in a weird way, this is the kind of seductive, again, I think almost anti-Girardian logic. So I don't really know how you make a film that actually would be Girardian. Um, so anything about rivalry or sports comebacks, I think is is how I would uh you know position kind of as an anti-girardian film which i know is not i love it so for people taking notes at home rocky is jesus i got you (laughs) (laughs) well well well, well, that's the thing is actually i don't know maybe he's kane he's just got to kill abel and you know then they become friends and then he kills somebody else anyway it's got that's why there's like six rockies man you got to keep going and he creates the same thing All right, Spotify playlists. you got you got any tracks to recommend gerard tracks no they're not well yeah I, I also, again, this may be just my my middle of the night thinking, which makes sense in the middle of the night and maybe not so. But I kept thinking of songs that have weird twists that totally break the schema in my mind of what to expect. And so the two songs that I came to mind were Guns N' Roses, November Rain, uh, and Radiohead's <laughs> Paranoid Android, um, both of which have some pretty... Uh, some pretty amazing twists um, in them. And I think this is kind of the the way I read Gerard. Um, yeah. So, I, I, so, makes, so you're, you're, you're almost going for like a, like a sonic. I, I like it. It's a different way of approaching the question. Like, you know, Girard pr- provides this kind of surprising way of interpreting text. And likewise, when Slash bursts in at like the yeah. seven minute mark of November rain. It's the best it's part. Just, yeah. yeah. Oh, no question. It's, a, it's not even a very good song until Slash jumps in there. 
Um, Paranoid Android though is a classic. Um, you see, but you say that I hate I hate most of Paranoid Android until Tom York really whips out the pipes, and then I'm like, oh, ooh, just try, sign me up for some of this. So you know, you don't remember? Yeah. yeah. I'm like, All right. Why uh, don't you remember my name? All right. Sorry. All right. Last question then. What's the ultimate takeaway? Yeah. Um, I think the ultimate takeaway is don't deceive yourself. Be wary of your own righteousness. Uh, and I think if we were to be in hundred percent majority in here, uh, let God fight your battles. Uh, and then you don't need to worry about, um, the imitation victim rivalry mechanisms, which, uh, are, are all too persuasive and still very, still very much in effect today. I think even if, uh, maybe there's a way out, I think of it almost like original sin, you know, you, you're free from it perhaps, um, in some, you know, when you, there are things you can do to be free from it, but you're never, you're never out from under its shadow, so to speak. Um, and that may open up more, more cans of worms than I've really intended it to, but yeah, that's what I would sum uh, it up as. So, all right, man. Well, look, I, you did a great job in a compressed, uh, time frame there. And, uh, I, I really appreciate the, the analysis and look, it's a great book. I see Satan fall like lightning. Hopefully people will read it. And, uh, Clark, good job, man. I appreciate your time as always. Uh, likewise, a pleasure. Right. And I'll see you next week. Go pick up that, that your little kid. I'll go do the same, and then we, we'll circle back pretty soon. All right, take <laughs> care, good. man. Yeah. All right, yeah, bye-bye.